0: and after the preaching of God's word we will sing from him 70 day of judgment day of wonders dear congregation of our lord jesus christ the call to repentance is as old as the world the prophets preached repentance the lord did we read in mark chapter 1 that jesus came to Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The apostles after him preached repentance, and that call is still true for today. When Martin Luther wrote his 95 theses, he mainly wrote them against. Indulgences, And in them he said, when Jesus Christ said, repent ye, he meant that the whole life of the faithful is an act of repentance. And we find that word repent throughout the whole Bible. So what is repentance? True repentance, or what we sometimes call true conversion, is like a U-turn. People who become aware that they are traveling in the wrong way turn around. It's a change of direction. It involves, but it involves so much more. For when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, we not only have a changed relationship with the Lord, our entire being, our inside and outside is changed and is in the process of being changed and renewed until we meet the Lord in heaven. The Bible is filled with words about this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Therefore, if, is, if, if, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is what? He is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But repentance is not just for the heathen. It's not just a one-time experience. We're not finished once we come to faith in Jesus Christ and turn from a life of unbelief. It's a lifelong sentence. Something that's to happen every day, as the Catechism teaches us. The Bible has some unforgettable stories of repentance, ones that encourage us in our calling, like this one about Manasseh. Makes us see the two sides of true repentance, which is the dying of the old nature And the coming to life of the new nature. So let us look at this this passage this afternoon under the theme an unforgettable story of repentance. And we'll look at this with three points. First of all, a dark regime. Secondly, a dramatic change. And thirdly, a devoted heart. So first of all, a dark regime. If we were to read just verse 1 and verse 20 of this passage, we would come to the conclusion that everything was fine with this king. He reigned not only 40 years like David did, or like Solomon, but 55 years, many years. And we might say that he lived a normal life as a Davidic king, reigning long and dying Peaceably. And yet, in those 55 years, there was so much damage done. These were years of incredible abominations. And the word here, abomination, in verse 2, means literally a disgusting thing wickedness, abominable in an ethical sense. There were more terrible things happening in, in Judah than among the heathen nations. That's how bad it had become. And that's a lesson in and of itself. May it never be said of us, oh, those reform people. Oh, they just, you know, we we know how they live. We know how they are. We hear them talk. We hear what they they say. That was the reputation of of King Manasseh and and, and most of his reign as the, the king of Judah. He had wiped out Hezekiah, his father, and his reforms. He had increased the wickedness in the land, and he had exhausted the patience of the Lord. The writer of the Chronicles itemizes everything for us so that we feel the weight of these sins. In verse 3, we read that he instituted fertility worship. He raised up the high places that his father had torn down. It's exactly what the... Antichrist, king of Israel, King Ahab, had done in his reign in the northern kingdom. Not only this, he even placed an Asherah pole in the temple. Verse 5 says that he built altars to the host of heaven, which were for astral worship, the worship of the sun, moon, and the stars. That's what the Canaanites did. Something that the Lord clearly commanded them not to do. Manasseh also stooped down to the level of the horror of child sacrifice, something that King Ahaz had also done in the past. And then verse 6 catalogs the activities of the occult, including sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, which involved the consulting of mediums and necromancers. This worship of the Thonic deities, as they're called. The thonic deities were thought to be from the underworld. And added to this, verse 7 says that he set a carved image which he made in God's own house, which was specifically designed to be the house of the Lord where his name would abide. So, ashrapoles, fertility gods, Canaanite deities, the worship of deities of the subterranean world. Why? Why would he be so infected in his heart with these things? Why would he do a complete 180 degree turn from the way that his godly father had lived? Well, it's all about control. It's about fear. All these pagan religions were what you did to manipulate the gods to bless your future. The fertility gods were said to bless you in some way. You could manipulate them, they were were thought to do. In the worship of the stars, you sought after omens that would indicate future events. In the same way, when consulting with mediums and spiritists, you were trying to find out the secrets of Your future, so that you could continue to be blessed in some way. And by child sacrifice, the horror of it, you were paying the extreme price of purchasing the favor of the gods. This is what paganism is all about. Manasseh preferred to trust in the religious manipulations which kept security for his realm in his own hands. And thus, the worship of these other gods was a way to manage reality for one's own interests. We all have fears. We all have phobias. Our wrestling with the future is not really that much different from others, including Manasseh. As one writer put it, This would be Ed Welch. He says, there are fears for your safety and the safety of of those you love. Fears about how you will die. A progressive debilitating disease, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, being alone, being penniless. Fears about what happens after death. Being forgotten, being maligned, being judged, being extinct. Fears about living a meaningless life. Extensive resumes seem more and more hollow when we consider the end of life. Fears about being unloved or alone. Fears about being in love in the high probability of being hurt. Fears about what you might lose. Your figure, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Hair, youth, mind, job, spouse. Anytime you love or want something deeply, you will notice fears and anxieties because you might not get them. And yet, how does the Lord want us to live? When we're fearful, he doesn't want us to rely on the occult and spiritism or our own feelings and whims. He calls us to trust him completely. He's the sovereign God who walks before and beside us. He's with us through the green pastures as well as the deep valleys. The real tragedy is that it is not what Manasseh wanted. He completely abandoned that. He went so far and so long that the name of the Lord was completely forgotten. And we get that point in verses 7 and 8. He, said he, he even said a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of the Lord, which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the nations, I will have my name. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. Only if they are careful to do what I have commanded them. And according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. This is reality. God had placed his name in the temple and in Jerusalem. That means that he had made himself known there. He was the God to be trusted. He made a secure place. He brought rest and security. He was the God that saved. His name means everything. The only thing that he calls for is faith in him and obedience. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. That's what brings real satisfaction and joy. But Manasseh didn't want this. He didn't pray to the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord. He didn't even have the decency to respect the place of the Lord, the temple. Why was that? It's because he didn't know the Lord. He didn't care about the Lord. He had no inkling of what the Lord promised to do and to give. And how God is the source of all authority and all power. And how he gives us all that is needed. So how did the Lord deal with this? What did he think of all this? Well, that brings us to what we see here secondly within this passage. The dramatic change. Well, the king of Judah led the people to sin. God cared enough for them to send his prophets to speak the word. As always, when you listen to the prophets, God brings blessing. But when you don't. When you ignore them, when you don't listen to them, what happens? God brings judgment. 2 Kings chapter 21 verses 10 to 15 spells out in the graphic terms just how the judgment would be. 2 Kings 21 verses 10 to 15. Manasseh wouldn't listen and for his rebellion, he would go down in history as the king who filled up the cup of God's wrath against Jerusalem. The entire city would be emptied out and wiped clean like someone in the kitchen cleaning a dish and wiping it clean. For example, we read elsewhere in Jeremiah 15 verse 4 of how Manasseh made history. The Lord says to his people in Jeremiah's day, I will hand them over to trouble to all the kingdoms of the earth. Why? Because of Manasseh, the son of Hilkiah or Hezekiah rather, king of Judah, for what he has done in Jerusalem. We're not told in so many words what happened, just a summary of it in verse 11 of this passage where where we read that God sent the king of Assyria. God sent the king of Assyria as an instrument of judgment. Imagine how humiliating that must have been for him. As he was led, verse 11 says, with a hook in his nose and in bronze shackles. We know from archaeology that this is what the Assyrians did at that time. They actually inserted hooks through the noses of captives and attached them to chains. And we read here that he was carted off to, to Babylon. How painful that must have been. And how long that journey was. This wasn't just next door. This would have taken days, weeks, maybe even months to go all the way from Jerusalem to Babylon on foot. Lots of time to think. Lots of time to contemplate. Much time to look over his life as he considered what he had done and how he had lived Before the Lord. And that brings us to the actual response, which is only here in 2 Chronicles. You don't find this in 1 Kings chapter 21. It's only here in 2 Chronicles. We're told two things. First, he prayed. Verse 12. He implored the Lord, his God. It means he begged for God's favor. He entreated the Lord. And it reminds us of, of Solomon's prayer. You remember the, the prayer that Solomon made at the time of the dedication of the temple. Where he said, if, if anyone bows before you and, and comes to you and faces the temple with his prayers. May you hear on high. And also note the rest of verse 12. It says that he humbled himself greatly before the God of His fathers. Again, it's very reminiscent of the words of the Lord's instruction to his people. That if my people who are called by my name will what? Will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And because he prayed. And because he sought God's face, and because he humbled himself, what did the Lord do? God responded favorably to him. He brought him back to Jerusalem. Even the severe punishment of exile from the land was reversed by his prayers to the Lord. And that's what true repentance is. It's a dying to the old self. And it's a coming to the life of the new. And a very simple illustration of this brings that out. Have you ever made a wrong turn and went down the the, the wrong road? Well, you can come to an unnamed road, which may lead to a a dead end. Or it may uh, fall into a, a body of water. Perhaps there's a ravine ahead or a steep hill. And you could do two things. You can either keep on going and fall down that cliff, or you do the wise thing and turn around and go back. And this is what conversion is. It's turning around. Like Paul, as we read this morning, he was brought to that chasm and made to face the Lord in person. And he turned out of his sin. And the same for the Philippian jailer who made a, tur- a turnaround when God sent that terrible earthquake. But, that's, but this is not all that we need in repentance. We need sorrow. We need to be sorry. We need to be distressed for our sins. Not a sorrow that leads to death, but a sorrow, as God's word says, that leads to Repentance. A sorrow toward God, as the catechism says. A sorrow expressed to God. And that's not all. We need a a hatred for sin. That's probably where we fail sometimes. We, We naturally love sin. We know we have to be sorry. But do we hate it? Do we despise it so much that we more and more hate it and we flee from it? Do we run from sin? Or do we run to sin? So to hate sin means an absolute intolerance. Hate is to do away with it. To hate, means, to hate sin means that you, you can't in, endure it. You loathe it. You want, to, you want it to banish, to be banished from your life. Everything about it fills you with a repugnance. But not only is there to be a sorrow for sin, a hatred for sin, a dying to sin, and fleeing from sin, there is a joy that we're to have in the Lord. This is the coming to life of the new self. It's a wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a delight to do every kind of good as God wants us to do. We're to find our joy in Christ. That's why He has freed us from our sin, that that we might find our joy in Him. As Isaiah 61 verse 3 says, He has come, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. The toil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, The planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. His grace leads to a whole new life, a whole new attitude, a whole new way of living. And we delight not after the old man, but we delight after the new man that's created in Christ Jesus. That's what Manasseh came to see and know. Notice the last words there at verse 13. As God responded in love and mercy, verse 13 says, Then Manasseh knew. What? He knew that the Lord was God. He knew that God had delivered him from his imprisonment. It's like that beautiful hymn by Isaac Watts, And Can It Be, as Watts describes God's deliverance like the deliverance of, Of the apostle Paul, from the apostle Peter, rather from from prison. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed. And so we see not only a dark regime, a dramatic change, we see, thirdly, a devoted heart, which we see in the fruit of Manasseh's repentance. Other than rebuilding the outer wall and making it a lot higher, as well as placing troops on the fortified city, or in the fortified city, Manasseh demonstrated that he was a changed man. How do we know this? Well, first in verse 15, we read that he got rid of all the foreign gods, as well as the idol that he had placed in the house of the Lord. He threw it out of the city. These actions show that his repentance was genuine. It was real. His conviction that the Lord was God had led him to destroy all The idolatry that he had introduced after his father's reign. notice in verse 16 that he reestablished proper worship in a positive manner. He restored the, the, the altar in the temple. He brought back the proper sacrifices and used the furniture of the temple the way that the furniture was supposed to be used. Manasseh himself had been faithful in his attempt to restore worship. However, notice in verse nineteen or verse seventeen that the the people themselves were not able to be completely free of the past. They worshipped the Lord, but they still continued to do that on the high places, which was the practice that ensnared the people into idolatry throughout their history. The high places. It's as if it's telling us that Manasseh's conversion didn't make a full difference. It was wonderful. Let's not be mistaken. It was real as it ever could be. But disaster had been afflicted. The poison had been doled out. Whatever change may have come of the king of Judah, it would have no lasting impact or on the following generations. And so it was with his son, Ammon. He just continued along the same path as his father. What does that say to us? Well, it tells us. It, it's a warning to us. It's a warning to us. You can have a, a healthy spiritual life later on in life, but seldom does that lead to a godly Legacy. Instead of a, a godly repentance and a faithful legacy comes, which comes from a lifelong practice of godliness and faithfulness to the Lord. And so, congregation, do we have a daily repentance? Do we have a daily repentance? A putting off of the old man and putting on of the new man. Is there a heartfelt sorrow for sin and a turning away from it? And is there a heartfelt joy to do what God loves by our obedience. One of the, the texts that is in the footnote of, of Lord's Day 33 is Colossians chapter 3, where Paul says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Considering what God's word says there, if we enjoy a bit of fornication, be it with a secret partner or on the internet chat room, we're not in a state of repentance. Where we let passions go, where we are satisfying our evil desires, where we want more and, and more, and where we're not in a state of repentance. If there's a covering, a coveting rather, spirit that is unsatisfied with what we have, that's not being in a state of repentance. Instead, Colossians 3, verse 12, another text in the footnote says, our conduct is to be characterized by attitudes of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and peace. We're to have the attitude of, of patiently bearing up one another's weaknesses. That's supposed to take place in the home. In a family relationship, children and young people as well as adults are to have an attitude toward parents. One of humility and meekness, not of disrespect. The attitude to your wife is to be one of mercy and kindness. Your attitude toward your neighbor is to be one of forbearing and forgiving as Christ forgave you, though uh, you were unworthy. Not with impatience. Repentance is not something you can hide. Repentance is not something that you can hide. Those who died with Christ and were raised with him live by the principles of the new nature. Making a point of putting off earthly attitudes and putting on heavenly ones. If we don't examine ourselves by the word to see that We're doing this, what it requires, or to see where we fall short. If we don't turn from those sins, then we're in a state of unrepentance. But Jesus said, repent or perish. Woe to him who's not sorry. For his sins, who does not grieve wholeheartedly that he has hurt God with his actions and with his attitudes, and does not have a heartfelt sorrow for God. But blessed is he who has died with Christ and has been raised with him, who is putting off the old nature and putting on the new. That man or woman. Our child will know the joy in God through Christ of knowing the Lord and delighting in his will. May that be true of each one of us here today. Amen.